This morning, I've been given the privilege to start a series of sermons on the Christmas story. Our scripture today will be from the very first part of Luke chapter 1, but before we get to the scripture, I would like to start off our time together with a brief history lesson. Pompey the Great, whom many of you may not be familiar with, was the ruler of Judea under the Roman Republic in the earlier half of the last century B.C. Julius Caesar, who I imagine most of you are familiar with, came into power under the same Roman Republic and finally rose through its ranks to the point that he was really the cause of its end when he became emperor of Rome in 45 B.C. Now, during Julius Caesar's rise to power, not everyone was in favor of his becoming emperor, and Pompey would have fallen into that category of person. And so, on his way to gaining power, Julius Caesar was forced into a conflict with, Con with Pompey, uh, which came to a head in the year 48 BC in the Battle of Pharsalus. It was during that battle that a man who had been leader in the region under Pompey actually switched sides and came to the aid of Caesar when he was in need. That man's name was Antipater. Now, after Caesar's victory, Antipater, for his service to Caesar, was given rule over the area of Palestine. Antipater had two sons. And for one of those sons, Antipater was able to secure a position as prefect of Galilee. The son for whom he was able to secure this position was a man named Herod. Herod took the leadership well and quickly made a name for himself as one who could stamp out terrorism in the area. In those days, militant Jews had gotten in the habit of stabbing Roman citizens and Roman soldiers whenever they thought they could get away with it. And so their terrorism was a considerable thorn in the side of Rome. The group was called Sicarii. It was named for the short dagger that they used in their assassinations. These terrorist attacks had been a problem for Rome in the area for quite some time, and Herod was able to get control of it. As you might expect, this ability of Herod's to bring stability to the region made him quite popular with Rome. At some point during, during Herod's early year, or early years as ruler, another group of people known as the Parthians invaded that region and actually took it over. And because of this, Herod was forced to flee to Rome for safety. And this was no real trouble for Herod because, like I already mentioned, the Romans were quite fond of him. In fact, after a short time in Rome, Herod was asked to go back to Palestine. This time, however, he would be given an army. And his mission then was to rid the area of the Parthians and to reestablish Roman rule. Now, Herod agreed to this. And for his trouble, he was given a new title by Octavian and Antony and the entire Roman Senate. His new title was the King of the Jews. So he went back to Palestine, and after a year-long war with the Parthians, he finally won back the region for Rome and was the official and undisputed 
king of the Jews. And so it was that the king of the Jews was not really even Jewish. He was an Edomite. He did, however, wield the authority of Rome, and for that the Jews both hated and feared him. He called himself Herod the Great, and is generally known as Herod the Great or Herod the First by historians. And he was the first of the Herods who ruled in that region. Herod the Great undertook many building projects in the area of his authority and was actually able to accomplish quite a lot. In fact, some of the projects built by Herod the Great, or at least their ruins, are still there to this day. He built the port city of Caesarea and named it after his friend, Caesar Augustus, who, which was Octavian's title. He brought back other cities from the brink of ruin, like Samaria. And still he added to the grandeur of other cities like Beirut and Damascus. He was a powerful and effective ruler and did many great things. However, he also had his flaws. Herod was an incredibly paranoid man. He knew that the Jews did not like him because he was an Edomite, and so to try to make things better between himself and the Jews, he married a very prominent Jewish woman. Turns out that that really didn't help him much, and he actually eventually had his wife killed. Now, once he had killed his wife, he also had her mother killed because who wants to listen to their mother-in-law's endless complaints about the murder of her daughter? Now, if that weren't enough, he was so paranoid that at one point he actually killed two of his own sons out of the fear that they would take his power. And so he was a great leader who did some very marvelous things on one hand. And on the other hand, he was an absolute lunatic of a king who killed people that were closest to him in order to retain his power. Now, Luke begins his story of the birth of Christ by telling us when it all happened. He is telling us a real story about real people. And so he starts with an introduction that his readers would have known. And he opens up with this statement. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. Now, to the people of those days, this would have seemed much more like current events than ancient history, people would have known these stories. They would have known the stories about how their king came into power, and they could have roughly estimated the timing of this story that Luke is telling. They would have understood the reality of all these events that I've been describing, and now hopefully so do you a little bit. The point is that Luke starts off his story about Christ with the introduction of the forerunner of the Messiah, none other than John the Baptist. And to start off the story about John the Baptist, he begins first by rooting it firmly in the real world. His point, without trying to state it so obviously, is that this is a real story. This is not a fictional cast of characters and events. Instead, this is a real story sequence of events, and real people were part of those events. In other words, this is historical. The story that Luke 
is just beginning to tell the most excellent Theophilus and now to us is just as true as the stories about Caesar and Pompey and Antipater and Herod. This story is rooted firmly in reality because it's a real story. It's true. This is real history. The story we are about to go through would have been just as known to the people around this time and in this location as something that might go on in this small town would be known to all of us. What would it have been like to have been there? How would you have reacted to these things that we're about to discuss? Would you have been excited? Probably. Would you have been frightened? Possibly. Would you have been fascinated? Without a doubt. And that's how we still should be. Excited. Maybe a little frightened. And totally fascinated. Excited because it's so apparent that God is on the move. Frightened. Because when God is on the move, nothing can stop him. Fascinated because when God's on the move, since nothing can stop him in heaven or on earth, it's worth watching to see what he will do. Listen now as I read to you our passage for today. It's rather long, but pay attention. Watch as God begins the actual events that will ultimately bring about the only way of salvation for the entire world. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, 
And I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, like I pointed out to you at the beginning, this story is grounded in the truth of historical fact. These are real people that really existed. And God, through his Holy Spirit and through the inspired words written here by Luke, is firmly grounding this story in known historical fact. Herod was a real king, and we've already discussed some of his highlights, some of the highlights of his career and his character. It was in the time of Herod the Great that there lived a certain man, a certain priest named Zechariah. Now, Zechariah had no title like Herod did. He was not Zechariah the Great. And he was not a very significant character at all, in fact. He was a priest. But before you go thinking that that was highly unusual or incredibly significant, I want you to know that in Israel at this time, there were somewhere between 18 and 20,000 priests. In fact, if you were a male and you were from the tribe of Levi, then you were a priest, or you would be someday. That was simply the occupation of an adult male in the tribe of Levi. Zechariah was a priest, but he was not any significant priest as far as the world could see. He was just a humble priest, just one out of 20,000 or so that would have lived in Israel at this time. He was married, and we've learned that his wife's name was Elizabeth and that she was the daughter of a priest. So she too was from the tribe of Levi. In fact, her parents had named her after the wife of Aaron, who was the first high priest of Israel and the brother of Moses. This couple then was a God-following couple, not, not significant to the world around them in some extraordinary way, but they were just a normal sort of couple who lived a life following God. They lived for His glory as much as they could. And now how do I know that they were living for Him? Well, our scripture for the day describes them pretty well. In verse 6, it says, they were both righteous before God and walked blamelessly before Him. Spe specifically, it says, they kept His commandments and statutes. In other words, they knew what the Word of God said, and they followed it. These were two people living a simple life, living a small life, but they were living it well as far as God was concerned. They followed Him. They followed his word. It was the thing that motivated their lives. They lived the way they lived because they wanted to serve and honor God. They weren't perfect. Of course, no one is. 
But when there was sin in their life, they addressed it. They repented of it and they made the appropriate sacrifices that God required. And thus, they were blameless before God. That's what it means when it says that they were righteous and blameless before God. It is much the same as when the Bible says of Abraham that he believed God and it was accounted to him as what? Righteousness. Certainly we know that Abraham wasn't sinless, but before God, due to his faith in God, he was seen as righteous. Abraham followed all that God commanded, and though he did not do it to perfection, God knew Abraham's heart, and God knew that Abraham truly loved God and truly trusted God. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. If you really understand what I just said, it should be most one of the most encouraging things your ears will ever hear. So this is much the same in the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Up until this time, there was truly nothing significant about them as far as their standing or influence in the world. But to God, they were precious because he knew that they loved him and that they followed him. And that's what it says in verse 6. That's what it's talking about when it says that they were righteous and that they were blameless. Now, verse 7 tells us the last little tidbit of information about them that we need to know to really get this story going. It tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth, though they were good people, though they did love God, though they truly lived their lives for Him, they were without children. What's worse than that is that we also learn they were advanced in years. And the point here is that they were beyond hope of ever having a child. Here is this lovely couple. There is every indication that they loved each other, that they had a great marriage, that they made good decisions, that they really lived a life worth imitating, and yet they were denied by God what was considered to be the biggest blessing a marriage could ever have, a child. But through their disappointment, they didn't get bitter, though it must have been sad at times. Instead, they just kept right on living a good life and serving the Lord. All this they did while knowing that God could bless them at any time if he just wanted to but he had chosen not to. They had lived their whole lives for him and yet still never had a child. In spite of being denied this great blessing, they served God and they loved him and they did so from the heart. And we know this by the way they were already described in the verse just before. What made it all worse is that now they were advanced in years and the likelihood of conceiving a child at this point was almost zero. This was a wonderful, God-fearing couple who had lived well in the service of God, and yet they were now beyond hope to ever receive the one thing in life they wanted more than anything else. In the society they lived in, being childless was seen as a sign of divine disfavor. It was something that God did to those 
poor souls that weren't living for him. So he just would cut off their ability to have children. Now, certainly this was not true in the case of this couple, but they still had to live with the disappointment and with the heartbreak, and on top of that, with the social disgrace that would come from being a childless couple. So now our story is set up just perfectly. We have our time period, which is during the reign of Herod the Great. We have our location, just some normal setting in Israel. We have our characters, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, Elizabeth. And we have enough backstory about them to know that we like them. After all, they're good godly people, just normal, simple folk living a normal, small life and doing all they could. What's not to like? We even have enough information about them to feel their pain. They had no children, and that was a disgrace for them. That was a heartbreak. But through it all, they remained true to God and true to each other. These are the underdogs. These are the ones to whom life just had not been as good as it should have been. Now I know I said that we had all of the groundwork for our story set, but that's not totally true because there's another story unfolding at the very same time as this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. This other story is not a small story that concerns two practically unknown, simple people who lived in Israel during the reign of King Herod. This other story is the culmination of the plan of salvation for an entire world lost in darkness. This other story is about to break a 400-year-long silence between God and Israel. Israel had been chosen by God to be his people and God had been with Israel from Abraham on. And he had, been, he had been speaking to them and sending prophets to them and working miracles in them and amongst them. And then one day, without explanation, God just stopped talking. No more prophets were sent forth. As far as we know, there were no more miracles in that time. Oh, the Jews still had their scripture, and that's certainly a great thing, but God himself was silent. 400 years is a long time for God to not talk to Israel. Nothing new was coming out of heaven. God had given his word. He had promised the Messiah, and then silence. The nation waited and waited, but still nothing. Generations of people came and went, but God remained silent. There was nothing heard from heaven in all that time. I'm sure the people began to wonder if God had forgotten them completely. Some folks probably wondered if all that stuff written down in the Old Testament were really true or if it just wasn't a lot of wishful thinking and myths written down by their ancestors. 
400 years is a long time. But now our little story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is about to converge with the biggest story ever to play out in human history. Zechariah and Elizabeth and maybe their neighbors and their family might have thought that they were just an insignificant couple of nobodies, but all of that was about to change because after 400 years of silence, heaven was about to speak again. And this is starting to get good. In verses 8, 9, and 10, we read, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. At the time of Zechariah, every priest in Israel would have twice a year gone to the temple in Jerusalem to serve. Now, like I said already, there would have been close to 20,000 priests in Israel at this time, and all of them would have gone to the temple to serve twice a year for a number of days. They would not have all gone at the same time, but they would have taken turns performing their duties. Much of their duties, by the way, were the slaughtering of hundreds and thousands of animals and offering the sacrifices of the people on the altar to God. They were butchers most of the time. Being a priest was a bloody job. So this was one of those times for Zechariah, and he had made his biannual trip to the temple along with many others. He was once again just one of the many, just a normal face in the crowd of priests. But this time, something new happened. Now this thing that happened wasn't out of the ordinary for Israel, but it was very much out of the ordinary for Zechariah. Amidst the hustle and bustle of the big city and the temple, there was every day, chosen by lot, one priest that would go into the holy place to keep the incense burning. Now, there was a place called the holy place in the temple, and it was separate, separated from the rest of the temple. And in the holy place, there was the altar of incense that would have incense burning on it. And to keep the incense always burning, someone would have to go into the holy place every day and replenish the incense. That person, by the way, was always going to be a priest. No one else was permitted into the holy place. And it was a great honor for anyone that was chosen to do this. In fact, it was such an honor to be selected to do this that once you did this one time, you were never permitted to do it again. As a normal Jew then, you would never in your whole life go into the holy place. But even as a priest, you probably wouldn't go into the holy place. And if you ever did get selected to do it, you would never do it again. This was a once-in-a-lifetime honor if you ever got to do it at all. Inside the holy place, there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies or the most holy place. Into that place, no one but one person could ever go. That one man would be the high priest, and he would only go into that place once a year. 
in that place, the presence of God dwelt. That is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Zechariah was chosen to go into the holy place, which was just outside the Holy of Holies, separated by a curtain. This would have put him physically closer to the presence of God than he would have ever been before or would ever be again. This moment for him then was really the highlight of his entire priestly career. This was the biggest and greatest honor that Zechariah would have ever dared to dream of. He'd been a priest for many years and he'd never gotten to do this before. But on this day, God saw to it that Zechariah was chosen by Lot and given this great blessing. And as far as Zechariah knew, this could not possibly get any better. But as excited as Zechariah was, he had no idea what was about to happen. He went into the holy place and began his task. And for the moment, everything seemed to be just as he would have expected. But then something happened that no one could have predicted. For in that small space, just to one side of the altar of incense, appeared an angel. Remember, in all of Israel, for over 400 years, this had never happened. God had been totally silent, and no one knew why. Heaven was just silent. I tend to think, this is just me, that God was silent all that time so that when he finally did speak again, it would be much more significant than if he had just been speaking that whole time. He waited for 400 years, and then whatever he was going to say would be like putting an exclamation point right at it when he finally started to talk again. Well, Zechariah looked up from the altar, and there in the room, where no one else should have been, someone else was. Now, that alone would have scared me out of my mind, and maybe it did Zechariah. But the next thing he realized is that the being in the room with him was not human, but an angel. And if he hadn't been scared before, he was definitely scared now. Angels are not cute little naked babies with wings. They are formidable beings. Keep in mind that one holy angel killed 180,000 Assyrians in one night. These are powerful, powerful beings. I can only imagine that being near one would be horrifying. I mean, I've been close to powerful things in my life, and it's scary. Been a couple of times when I was out hiking in Yosemite when I came upon a bear and got very close to the bear. Now, the bear didn't do anything to threaten me, didn't act like it was going to hurt me, but I was scared. And a bear is nowhere as close to powerful or as powerful as an angel. When you're near something that is that powerful, it is frightening. That's just how it is. Even if it doesn't hurt you, it's still scary. But the angel knew that Zechariah was frightened. 
And he did something that angels often do in the Bible when they appear to people. The angel said, do not be afraid. That's how he started. But then he began to unfold a story that's absolutely incredible. If Zechariah had been excited for the honor of getting to go into the holy place, what kind of honor is it to have a heavenly visitor come and talk to you? Beyond that, to tell you that the God of the universe has been listening to what you have been praying for. Just that would be enough. But then that he was actually going to answer your deepest longing. He was going to grant you a child. But it didn't stop there. The angel went on to say that the child that would be granted would be the forerunner of the long-awaited Messiah and that he would point the way to Messiah when he finally arrived. So Zechariah thought he was having a good day because he beat the odds and he got to go into the holy place to burn the incense. But now he's been visited by a holy angel. Not only that, but the angel has delivered to Zechariah a message straight from God. And not just any message. This angel was delivering a message that Zechariah and Elizabeth's deepest earthly desire was going to be granted to them in a miraculous way. And if that weren't enough, he even told them what the sex of the baby was going to be. It's going to be a boy. So they knew what color wallpaper to put up in the house. And that's handy. But beyond all that, beyond all of that, he was told that his son, his son, was going to be the forerunner for God's long-awaited Messiah. His son. Zechariah, the nobody priest, was going to be the father of the forerunner of the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Now this, my friends, is a good day. This day really couldn't get any better. But then, Zechariah had to go and open his big, dumb mouth. Don't, don't you just love the Bible? I mean, it just tells it like it is. This is how people are. This is just how we are. Think about it. We can say the stupidest things at the worst possible moments. And Zechariah doesn't disappoint. In verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Dude, shut your mouth. How shall I know this? How shall you know this? Well, how about this? Because there's an angel of God standing there telling you to your face. That's how you should know this. That's probably a pretty good indication that what's being said is true. Just a thought. But that's how we are. That's how we all are. Can't you just see God looking down on us, shaking his head and saying, why? 
Are you doubting me? Am I not the God that suspends the world on nothing right now? Do I not do the same thing with trillions and trillions of other planets and stars? Have I not been doing it all along? And yet, you're doubting my ability? How could we ever doubt God? When you think about it, it's actually insane that we could doubt God. But we do. When are we ever going to learn? Well, Zechariah has his doubts. And so he doesn't say, praise the Lord. And he doesn't say, thank you so very much. What he does say is, how am I going to know this? How am I supposed to believe this? And the angel has an answer. Boy, does he ever. Listen to this. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to you to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This is awesome. Gabriel rocks. Can I just say that? I mean, I'm not praising Gabriel, but come on, this is one cool angel. He doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't take back the blessing that he pronounced. All he has to do is just state the facts of the situation. And by merely stating the facts, Zechariah's lack of faith is totally condemned. You see that, right? Gabriel doesn't say, you little idiot. Talk to the hand. I can't even with you right now. He doesn't say anything like that. And Zechariah, I mean, he deserved it. He would have deserved any of that. And yet, all Gabriel does is just speak what is true about himself. That's all it takes. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Whoa. And then he says, I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Well, if he stands in the presence of God, and he was sent, who sent him? Zechariah, you done messed up, my brother. That is not what you should have said. You know, if Zechariah was scared before, he ought to be terrified now. I mean, have you ever said something, and as soon as you said it, you thought, that's not going to go real well? That's happened to me before. I have said things to my lovely wife, and as I'm saying, I'm listening to myself say the words, and I'm simultaneously thinking, you're going to die. 
But God doesn't take back his blessing. In fact, let's be honest. God already knew what Zechariah was going to say. God wasn't surprised at all. Gabriel might have been surprised. Zechariah might have even been surprised. But God wasn't surprised. I'm sure he had already maybe even told Gabriel how it was all going to go down. Gabriel probably looked at him and said, he's going to say what? No. Oh, he is. Well, should I melt him with lava? Just the voice thing. Okay. What's amazing about all this, if you really think about it, is that God, or all God did through Gabriel, was answer Zechariah's question. That's all he did. Zechariah asked, how am I supposed to know that this is going to happen? Answer, well, how about you're going to lose your ability to talk starting now? That's how you'll know. If ever you doubt, just try to talk. And you'll go, oh yeah, I can't talk. Because I doubted that God was going to give me a son who was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. You may think that this not talking thing was a curse, but I'm telling you right now, I bet every time Zachariah tried to talk and couldn't, it almost brought him to tears for the joy that he felt in his heart. This was an awesome thing. The Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. How do I know? I can't talk. God has given me the constant reminder of the salvation that is to come. I can't talk. Praise God. I can't talk. Every time that man opened his mouth and tried to say something and nothing came out, it was as if God were whispering in his ear, Messiah is coming. And your son is the forerunner. This had to be the most joyous time in his entire life and in the life of his wife, Elizabeth. Their hope was suddenly reborn from the ashes. Their life took on brand new flavor. Their joy must have been beyond words. And it's a good thing because Zachariah couldn't say those anyway. Can you imagine the commotion in the temple that evening? Word must have spread of this event like a clap of thunder from the temple mount. It echoed through the whole city. It traveled beyond the walls of Jerusalem and reached the farthest hills of Israel. 400 years of silence ended today. God has spoken to Zechariah. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Zechariah's son will be the forerunner. How will we know who the Messiah is when he gets here? Zechariah's boy is going to tell us. The son of Zechariah and Elizabeth is going to tell us. Zechariah and Elizabeth were finally going to get the child they had so desperately prayed for their whole life long, but never gotten. 
They had wept from their longing and their disappointment, but now their tears were only tears of joy. This wonderful, God-fearing, unknown couple had heard from Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And through the angel, God had spoken to them, and their life would be different from now on. Israel finally heard from heaven. After 400 years of silence, God had spoken to his nation once again. An angel had come to one of the priests and brought news of the Messiah. Israel's king was finally coming. The true king of the Jews was on his way. There were still probably many people in Israel that were unaware that all of this had happened. Some people that heard the news probably just dismissed it and went right on to feeding their sheep. The world outside of Israel, for the most part, didn't even know that there was a Messiah that had been promised. And nobody suspected that the Messiah who would come would be the king that Christ was. Nobody knew he would be the Lamb of God. Nobody knew that he would die to take away the sins of the world. No one could have guessed what God was actually up to. But God doesn't need our understanding to work out his plans. God doesn't need our faith to act. God can do whatever God wants to do. And 2,000 years ago, God wanted to give a child to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and he wanted that baby boy to grow into the man that would point the way to Messiah. And so the salvation of the world was at hand. The biggest story in human history was about to unfold. But for the time being, it was nothing but a baby growing in the womb of Elizabeth. And she remained in seclusion for five months. As big as the plan was, it was also small. Yes, the Messiah was coming. Yes, John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, would be the forerunner. But at the moment, all of that big story was just waiting for its time. At the moment, it was just one joyous mother waiting for her son to be born and her husband standing proudly beside her with a big grin on his face, not saying a word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the hope that it brings us. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. When he gets here, he'll take away our sins. He'll be our king. That's what they were saying so many, many years ago. And now, Lord, we still look to that day when our Messiah is coming and he will take us home. Amen.